0: You have your Bibles. Open them up with me to the letter of Jude. This evening we'll be beginning a new series, probably four sermons, maybe five, but more than likely four, going through verse by verse the letter of Jude. If you don't know where that is, go all the way to the end of Revelation and turn back just just one book, and you'll be at Jude. This evening we're going to be looking just at Jude's introduction. In verses 1 through 2, and I believe there we'll find Jude telling us exactly what it is that a Christian is. Jude chapter 1. We'll be looking in particular at verses 1 through 2, uh, but it probably works out that you're already sitting. uh, Because I think it would be appropriate, as short as this letter is, if we read the entirety of this little epistle this evening. So we'll read... The entirety, it's, it's 25 verses, just one chapter, but come back and focus in primarily on just those first two verses. This is God's holy word. Hear it now. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask now that you would be gracious to us and that you would grant to us eyes to see, ears to hear, And that You would soften even the rockiest and stoniest of hearts to be able to receive the Word of God as it is preached. Father, I pray as Your herald this evening that You would help me simply to not get in the way. That You would be with the meditation of my heart and the words of my lips. Father, that I would preach Your Word faithfully in a way that does justice to You and Your Word and in a way that builds up the flock of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray all this in Christ's name and for his kingdom and glory. Amen. So this evening will be beginning. Uh, what will most likely, and I say most likely, you know, it, it, it could change as we get deeper into uh, the weeds of Jude, but most likely what I think is going to wind up being a four-part series going verse by verse through the book of Jude. And Jude, as little as it is, is a unique book in, in a few different ways. The first of which being right here in the very first verse, when we consider who it was written by. That it was written by, we read, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Which I think Jude is being a little bit humble here, because another way of saying that is Jude could have just said, Jude, a brother of Jesus. Because Jude is in fact, well, half-brother of Jesus Christ Jude also is unique in that it has the only greeting, the only greeting in the New Testament that does not mention grace. It stands alone in that. And it stands alone as well in that it contains the only greeting in the New Testament that does mention love. Jude takes a common uh, uh, Hebrew phrase, uh, mercy, peace, grace, and you'll see that in a variety of different ways throughout the New Testament, but he substitutes, instead of grace, love there. Jude is what we would call a general epistle. It's a little bit different than Colossians that we just spent about a year going through. Colossians, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians. These are uh, specific epistles, specific letters written to specific churches. Certainly, they were circulated. uh, But Jude is what we call a general epistle. Uh, Meaning it wasn't written to any one particular church or family or person, uh, but rather to the entirety of Christ's church, to all Christians in all ages, which really... We would understand that Ephesians, Galatians, any of those, though they had a primary target initially, they're for all of Christ's church. We find also, if maybe you haven't read Jude in a while, but you're more familiar with 2 Peter, you'll notice a ton of similarities. Uh, Jude and 2 Peter have much in common, particularly if you look over at 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, they have almost the exact same scope in mind. They they cover the exact same topics, uh, so much so that the vast majority... In fact, I don't know if you can find a commentary that doesn't contain Jude in the same volume as 2 Peter. Uh, they're always grouped together because they cover the exact same topics. And if you were to look at verse 3, you'll find Jude telling us why he has written this letter. You'll find that Jude had planned on and, and had, wanted, had, had intended, as it were, to write a letter of what we might call general instruction... He says that he wanted to write, quote, about our common salvation. And really, this makes sense, I think. When you consider who Jude was, that he was the half brother of Jesus Christ, the God man. Certainly, then, we can imagine that Jude would have had plenty of lessons about our common salvation to share with us, would he not? He's coming from a place of that level of intimate acquaintance that he got to grow up alongside Jesus as a a boy, as a young adult, uh, before his ministry ever started. He he grew up in the same house with Jesus, for crying out loud. He he wanted to write a letter of general instruction, but we find here that he had to change his plan. Due to some circumstances that we're not, not really completely sure of, due to some situation going on in the churches... Jude writes that he found it necessary in verse three, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And this is really uh, if you were to isolate you know I hate to call it a most important verse, but if you were to isolate kind of the, the main idea of Jude, this is it. Uh, this is a letter where Jude is helping us to do exactly that to contend. For the faith to fight for the faith, so so out of necessity, he writes this letter that is not chiefly concerned with, in the first place, theology or doctrine or, or what, what we might think of as, as catechesis, uh, teaching truth in general, uh, but rather he's given us a letter heavily burdened with warning, with warning. It's a letter in which Jude uh, sounds the alarm. He calls the church to arms. He calls the church to persevere. I always think as I'm reading Jude, if if you've watched Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings movies, which if you haven't, what are are you even doing? Uh, They're back in theaters, I think, this week. Here's your chance to go back and watch it. Uh, There's that scene in in The Lord of the Rings where they begin to light the fires on the mountaintops to to call uh, the people, to call the men to arms. And this is what the letter of Jude is doing for the church. It's a call to arms. Jude here gives the church militant marching as to war, as that old hymn says, our rules of engagement. And so today we're only going to be focusing on the first two verses, Jude's uh, greeting. And and there I believe we find Jude telling us exactly what a Christian is. He addresses his letter to the church, uh, to Christians in general, Christians far and wide. And he defines for us here in our first couple of verses exactly what that is. And so let us observe then this evening that a Christian is one who is called... One who is beloved and one who is kept. Called, beloved, and kept. And so we see first that Jude directs his letter to those who are called. Now this is a fairly common way that we find throughout the New Testament that writers address Christians or even themselves. The majority of the times it's used, it's used by the Apostle Paul. In fact, seven out of the ten New Testament occurrences are are from the pen of Paul himself. Uh, And they're all just within those letters of his uh, letter to the church at Rome and his first letter to Corinth. And in every single one of those instances, as we compile them, we begin begin to get a picture. We can form a picture of what it means to be called. In every one of those instances, we find that the call is either uh, to be an Apostle... To be saints, and with one called to belong to Jesus Christ, and with one called according to His purpose. But as common as we might say that it is in the New Testament, this is a way more common theme in the Old Testament. This is very common throughout the Old Testament. This is common Old Testament language used for the people of God. Israel was the nation that was called by God. Abram. Abram was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldeans and into covenant with and service to God. Now we're going to come back to that idea of you're called out of something, called into something. Abram was called not just for his own benefit, but so that he might be a blessing to the nation's. And so then, by that quick survey of, of called Old Testament and New, uh, we can begin to understand and form a picture of a few things about what it means that Christians are those who are called. And so first, first here under our first point, we must understand that we are called sovereignly by God; secondly, to sanctification, and thirdly, to service. I tried to make it easy for you. Sovereignly, sanctification, service. These are the three things that we should keep in mind as we consider what it means to be called by God. And so first there, we consider under our first point that we are called sovereignly by God. This is a phrase that I can just tell you as someone who did not grow up in the Presbyterian Reformed Church. This is a phrase that I think is far and wide in evangelical America completely misunderstood. Most often when we hear this word call, I grew up, I remember sermon illustration after illustration of, well, it's like a phone call, right? And it's your choice whether or not you pick it up or you decline it. But that's not what a call is biblically from God. The call of God is a royal summons, not an optional invitation. It's not like a phone call that you can choose to either accept or decline. There is no airplane mode that you can hit to escape. Jonah tried that, and we all know how that worked out for him. When the king calls you into his presence and service, you go. That's, that's the only option available. That is the only choice. There is no other choice available. And we find in God's word that we as Christians are those who have been called according to his purpose. We are those who have been called according to his initiative, according to his sovereign will and pleasure and plan. Jesus tells us in John six forty four that no one... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus says no one. There's not a soul on this earth who can come to Christ unless the Father has first called him. Maybe that's why we read not too long after that that the crowds departed. They came for the food. They heard some Calvinistic preaching and said we're out of here. And this sovereign call of God is effectual. It's effectual. The reason we refer to it as an effectual call is because it is effective. It's effective because it's God's sovereign call. He is the sovereign one. He is the king. He is the one that makes it work. Those whom the Son accomplished those whom the Son accomplished redemption for will have that redemption applied. They will receive the Spirit. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The Holy Spirit will effectively, effectually, irresistibly apply that redemption to the elect. He cannot and will not fail. It is 100% effective all the time. Notice with me here quickly, just as a side note, in case I forget to bring it up again as we go through this, I want you to notice, just just quickly as a side note here, the, the beautiful trinitarian theology jude has structured the text with here in his greeting to those who are called who are we called by the the, the spirit beloved in god the father and kept for jesus christ we have god the father god the son and god the spirit right here wrapped up in his greeting and so we are called sovereignly but what are we called sovereignly to We're, we're called sovereignly to sanctification and to service According to Romans 1.7 and 1 Corinthians 1.2, we are called to be saints. We are called, we're told in God's Word, to be holy even as He is holy. All those born again of God's Holy Spirit are saints. Unlike what our Catholic friends teach and believe, this isn't some office that you work and labor and aspire to. If you have been saved by God, you are by default, brother and sister, a saint But sanctification is not immediate. It's it's, it's not immediate. It doesn't all happen at once. It's what we would call progressive. It's ongoing and continual until the day of death. And so until then, we are called to grow in it. We are called to grow in our sanctification, to crucify the flesh and its wicked desires, and to put on holiness and obedience. We are called to be saints, to be sanctified by being, as our catechism would put it, renewed in the whole man after the image of God, being enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. But why is this necessary? Why? why would God put this call on our lives? Hebrews 12, 14. For without holiness, for without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And, and so God calls you. And, and we don't just want to leave that general and, and vague as we so often do it, just like we do with that Predestined word. You're, you're called to something. You're, you're predestined to something. To sanctification and we also see to service. We are called according to Romans 1.6 to belong to Jesus Christ. We are called, we read a few different times in the New Testament, according to His purpose. Just like Abram, we are called. We are royally summoned by our King not just to be freed from sin, to do as we please, but called into His service. We looked at a few weeks ago as I preached from Ephesians 1 on, on the redemption that Jesus has given us. He redeems us. He, he frees us from bondage to slavery. But that is not just to set us free to do our own thing. If he has bought us, is he not now our master? We are called into his service, called according to his purpose. And his purpose is that we be found serving him. He has called us into his service. We are called like Abraham was. Not just for our own benefit, but so that we may serve the Lord. Observe then, brothers and sisters, that Jude, uh, when introducing himself here in verse 1, he could have identified himself, as I think probably I would have, honestly, and I think most of us would. Jude could have identified himself as Jude, the brother of Jesus. I mean, like, come on, Jude, if you're wanting to give yourself credit, if you're wanting to give yourself credit, if you really want to make sure that people take this letter seriously, that's it right there. Forget reverend, forget doctor, forget master of whatever. Jude, brother of Jesus. Does that not carry weight? He could have introduced himself that way, but instead chose to identify himself as Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. What is Jude conveying here to us? Jude conveys here that he believes, as, as Matthew Henry would note, that it is really a greater honor to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ than to be akin to Him according to the flesh. Wrap your head around that. It is a greater honor to be a servant of Christ than to be related to Him according to the flesh. But also faithfully contending for the truth. And I don't want to delve too much into this. Part of our service unto Christ, I think a big part of what, what, what Jude is getting at here, because it's the whole point of his letter, that we contend for the truth. How, how do we walk in service to Christ our Lord? Similar to how Paul was called to be an apostle, which, which really means a, a sent one. So too, we find in passages like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we were called. We were chosen. Why? The word tells us that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were procured to proclaim. That's it. Have you ever wondered why when God saves you, he doesn't just zap you right up to heaven? Because he has a job for you to do. And it's not just a job for ministers. It's not a job for pastors or or missionaries or fill in the blank, whatever term you want to use. Every person in the body of Christ is to be about this work. In fact, we find in Ephesians 4 uh, that God gave shepherd teachers, pastors to the churches. Why? Not so that they would do the work of ministry, but what? So that they would build up the body of Christ so that the body would do the work of ministry. So then whether it be by our initiation through evangelism... Or defensively contending for the faith as Jude intends here against false teachers and and enemies of the faith. We have been called to proclaim the truth of his glorious gospel. We have been called sovereignly. Royally summoned to his service and to sanctification. But we are also, we read in this text, beloved. We are those who, Jude writes, are beloved in God the Father. And this is yet another place where this tiny little epistle stands unique. This is the only place in the New Testament where you will read this phrase. Beloved in God the Father. There is no other place in the New Testament that you find that phrase. It's the only place. And we should stand in awe of it. Not because it's the only place it appears. That's just some fun trivia for you. If you're ever doing a trivia night, you might win that one. But we should stand in awe of it. Because of what it says. Consider... That you, you are beloved in God the Father. You, who were, as Paul put it in Romans 5, ungodly, weak, and his enemy, are now beloved in God the Father. You, who were, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, dead in your trespasses and sins, You who were following after the prince of the power of the air are now beloved in God the Father. Stand in awe of the glorious gospel of Jesus here. No matter your background, your sins, your struggles, your faults, your failures, in Christ, if you come in Christ Jesus, in faith, in His finished work, in what He has done for you, You are beloved in God the Father. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. We are beloved despite us. Contrary to the K-love theology that is so prevalent in our culture and society, God did not love you because you were worthy of love. God did not... Call you and predestine you and elect you and choose you and die for you because you, in and of yourself, just had so much to bring and offer to the table. You are beloved despite you. We are not beloved because God found or saw something in us worthy of his love. We are beloved despite us, despite our sins, despite our failures, despite our weaknesses and our rebellion. In Christ Jesus, We are beloved. And this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. That we who stood rightly and justly condemned, we who stood dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, because of Christ and Christ alone, we are now beloved in God the Father. In fact, it's only because of our union with Christ that we are now beloved in God the Father. Consider with me John chapter 20, verse 26. Jesus says there, John twenty twenty six, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, now hear this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you hear what Jesus is praying for us, for his bride, for his people, for his church? What he's praying for you, brother and sister? That the love with which you, the fa- he's talking to the Father, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Jesus here prays for us that we would be granted to participate in the love with which the Father had for the Son eternally before the beginning of time, Jesus is praying, saying, Father, that love with which you loved me before time began, that love with which you loved me before there was a day and a night, before there was a land and a sea, that love with which you have loved me perfectly and eternally, I pray that you would love them with that love. And this is the good news of the Gospel. That in Jesus Christ, by His life, death, and resurrection, brother and sister, that prayer has been answered for you. You and I, who come trusting in the finished and complete work of Christ, you and I, who come placing our faith not in our own works, not in our own doings, not in our own strivings, but in Jesus' works on our behalf in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, you and I are now beloved in the Father. Just as God the Son is. Do you feel the weightiness? Jesus is saying, God the Father does not just love you. God the Father loves you with the same love with which he loves me, his eternally begotten Son. You who are in Christ are now loved by your heavenly Father no less than he loves his own Son. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. You are called, you are beloved. And you are also, we read, kept. We are those who are kept for Jesus Christ. What does this mean? Well, there's actually two parts to this. We have been preserved. And we have been preserved for a purpose. You don't just preserve something to preserve it. Ain't nobody got time for that. Uh, Look, last year I planted a garden. And I had an expectation of how many jalapenos, five jalapeno plants would produce. And they went far and beyond that expectation of production. Uh, so much so that I wound up stopping after I, had, after I had pickled and canned 20 jars. I just started letting them fall off the plant. I'm like, I don't, I don't want any more jalapenos. I can't give away any more jalapenos. N- nobody wants any more jalapenos. I wasn't going to keep preserving them. I mean, it, it was a good bit of work to make the pickling brine, to put them in the jars, to make sure it was sealed just right, to test the seal, to pick them, to cut them. Look, it, it was a lot involved. And they're good, but I can only eat so many. I can only give away so many. You preserve something for a purpose. And so we find here that we are kept, and that means we are preserved, but it also means that we're preserved for a purpose. You're preserved for a purpose. Our good shepherd Jesus, he's not going to lose a single one of his sheep. He's not going to. No one will snatch us out of His hands. He is able to guard until that day we read in His Word what has been entrusted to Him. And so despite our sins and our failures and our shortcomings and our struggles, we will persevere. The saints will certainly, not maybe, will persevere until the end because it is Christ who preserves us. This doctrine, what we call the perseverance of the saints, it's not the same thing as once saved, always saved. It's not the same thing. The truly converted and born again man will not go and live a life wallowing in unrepentant sin. It's not going to happen. It is not a possibility. The truly converted and born again man will not go and live this sort of life the one who has been given faith in Christ, who has been born again of His Spirit, will persevere, will grow in His sanctification until the very end. Not because of His strength, not because of His abilities, but because of the strength of His Savior who preserves Him. He who began a good work in you, brother and sister, will bring it to completion. We are kept. We are preserved. But we are done so for a purpose. Namely, for Jesus Christ, we are kept, we are preserved, so that we would be presented unto Christ on that day. Paul expands on this in Ephesians five, using the picture and image of marriage. He writes in Ephesians five twenty-five through twenty-seven: "Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might." So let's pause. Why did Christ love the church? Why did Christ give Himself up for and die for the church? Well, here's the answer. So that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We are kept. We are preserved for Jesus Christ, that we might be presented unto Him in splendor, as a testament to His glorious grace. This is why you are kept. This is why Jude asks as a prayer here, right here in his greeting, and he says to us, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. You can trust that that will be done. That prayer has been answered and will be answered, brother and sister. Mercy, peace, and love has been multiplied to you, is being multiplied to you, and will continue to be multiplied to you, not because you and I have earned it, not because we have deserved it, but because Christ your Savior has and He now preserves you unto that end. So then what is a Christian? He is one we find here in Jude 1, 1-2, through 2, who is called, beloved, and kept. He is called sovereignly to sanctification and service. He is beloved despite Himself because of Christ His Savior. And he is kept, preserved by Christ, and preserved for Christ. Praise be to God. Let's go to him now in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for this day that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for your creation as we hear the birds chirping behind us and see the sun setting over the trees. Lord, we thank you. That You have given us us a testament. You have given us a testament to Your existence and Your creation in, in everything. We should stand in awe simply by walking outside. But Father, we praise You that that is not all You have done for us. We praise You that we can stand in awe all the more as we reflect upon the beautiful, wonderful Gospel of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You that in Christ and Christ alone, That we now come as those called, beloved, and kept. Help us to rejoice in this. Help us to trust in this. And help us to share this good news with someone else this week. Father, we pray it in his name. Amen.